from Bangor Celtic Crossroads, a new festival featuring music by MR, Gabriel Donahue, and more from Thursday, September 27th through Sunday, September 30th. Shows at the Bangor Arts Exchange and Mason's Brewery. For more information, bangorkeltic.org. Just a few seconds before or after 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with host Natalie Springle is up next. Good morning, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. On today's show, we're talking about Maine's softshell clams. If you're a regular listener to the show, you might recall that last spring, we also talked about clams, focusing that day on their unique management at the town level. We also touch, touched briefly that day on the alarming decline of the species. If harvest rate can be used as a measure for population change, the state's data tells the story. The amount of clams harvested in the last 40 years has decreased by 75%. So today we're asking some important questions. Why are clams declining? How do we know and what can be done about it? To help us answer these questions, we have some folks today who are on the front lines of looking for some answers. So we have Dr. Brian Beal, who's a professor of marine ecology at the University of Maine at Machias and director of research at the Downeast Institute. Hi, Brian. Hello. How are you doing? Great. Good to have you. Good. Uh, we have Sarah Randall, associate director of the Downeast Institute. Hi, Sarah. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning. And on the phone, we have Chad Coffin, who's a professional clamor and president of the Maine Clamors Association. Hi, Chad. Hi, Natalie. Great to have you. Thanks for joining us on the line. I guess you're not clamming right now. I'm not, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Works out well for us. Um, great. So let's start by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about what each of them does and how they got into this work. So why don't we start with Brian. Brian, sure. you're at University of Maine at Machias. I am, and I've been teaching at the University of Maine at Machias since 1985. Uh, I was actually an undergraduate there from 1975 to 79. Uh, right now I teach courses in marine biology, marine ecology, as well as statistics, and I have a half-time teaching and research appointment. And that half-time re research appointment allows me to do the work with the soft-shell clams on the flats and with communities and individuals um, as, as, uh, as things go. Great. Yeah. Great. And Sarah, you are with the Downeast Institute. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got there and what the Downeast Institute is all about. Yeah, so I actually grew up in the town of Freeport on the banks of the Harrisicate River, which is one of the most productive 
um, rivers for clamming in in the state and went away for a period of time. And then when I came back, um, I came into my hometown and uh, the Down East Institute and the Maine Clamors Association were doing this um, really, in my opinion, the most innovative work um, around marine resources. And I became involved with them at the beginning of their experiments in 2013 and have been working on them ever uh, working with the Down East Institute ever since. I'm now their new associate director. And the Down East Institute is a nonprofit um, marine research institution and education center. We're actually the most, the easternmost of this type of institution in the state. We just, um, and we're also a public shellfish hatchery, and we raise all kinds of different um, species, softshell clams, of course, scallops, Arctic surf clams, mussels, um, razor clams, European oysters, American oysters, the list goes on and on. And um, we're also the marine field station, science field station for the University of Maine at Machias. So we fill many different roles. Great, great. It'll be good to dive into the to the work on the research and the seeding. Um, Chad, uh, welcome to the show. So you're a clammer and you are at the home of the Maine Clammers Association. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, I got into clamming, you know, back when I graduated high school and I grew up in a, a family of uh, fishermen and lobstermen and, um, you know, and I, I was pretty much happily digging, being, you know, you know, kind of on the fringes of society until uh, maybe 2005 when uh, when some some issues led to some massive closures that essentially uh, was putting everybody out of work, putting all the clamors out of work in the state. And um, I was one of several people that uh, went up and down the coast and uh, organized clamors. And, um, we, you know, we formed the Maine Clamors Association to address issues of water quality and um, you know, a lot of that work has, you know, it's, it's, as you probably know, water quality is an ongoing issue. But uh, that being said, now we're, you know, we've we've had the chance to, over the last several, you know, maybe five years, I guess, to start looking into the causes of decline. And I've learned a lot from people all over the coast, and I'm very familiar with uh, different, uh, different, you know, different towns and different rivers. And I know a lot of clamors, and I know a lot of the issues in their town. And it's, it's pretty much all that, you know, it's the same everywhere in a lot of regards. And uh, so anyways, that's pretty much my, my story. And I, like I said, I'm happy to share what I, what I can with you. Chad, can you give us a sort of a scope of the clamming industry as a whole in the state? Like how big is it? Where is it concentrated? How old is it? Sort of a, a picture of the industry? Yeah, that's a good, you know, that's a great question. I, you know, I don't, I, I'm not real familiar with you know, historic um, aspects of the fisheries, like, you know, prior to the 1940s. But, um, you know, over the last, oh, I guess maybe, you know, I, I know the clamming is really, um, the clam fishery has has shrunk considerably over since 1976 when there were approximately 6,500 clamors, licensed clamors in the state, and now there are approximately 1,500. And out of that 1,500, there's really, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people that hang on to licenses. Um, so there's not, you know, that, that don't use them anymore. And so there's uh, there's not really, a, it's hard to say how many people are actually clamming for a living, but 
the numbers are low. I'd say probably less than, than 600 people are actually clamming for a living now in the state of Maine. And that's different than when you were starting out? When I, I you know, I caught the tail end of it. You know, I, I had the, when I started out in 1990, the fishery was in this part, in, in the southern part of the state, in the mid coast, you know, it was very, it was still booming. There was still a lot of people fishing. At about that time, a lot of towns in the, in the mid coast and southern Maine also implemented limited licensing rules, which has, you know, that's that's contributed to the uh, decline in, in the number of clamors because, you know, that was, you know, 1990 was 28 years ago. So, uh, you know, people are, uh, are a lot older now. They, it's, an, it's like other fisheries, people are, are aging out of the fishery. Wow, that's interesting. Um, so, so the so clams huge role in Maine's culture, right? It's it's also it's kind of an, an iconic fishery for so many of us here on the coast, um, and so many people who come to the coast and want to appreciate what Maine is all about. You know, the, the ubiquitous clam bake. Um, how about from an ecological perspective, Brian? Can you kind of paint us a picture of the role of clams in our mudflats? Sure. <laughs> Everyone talks about. Uh, ecological engineers. Uh, these are just simply species that have both direct and indirect impacts on uh, ecosystems. And, and soft-shell clams um, are in that same, uh, same vein. So they're a suspension feeder. They filter the water. Um, they also provide uh, energy for um, higher trophic levels. That is to say, they, they provide energy to predators. Um, so they have, they clean the water, they provide food, not only for us, but for, for, for prey, uh, for predators. Um, and they are uh, probably uh, the most ubiquitous bivalve besides mussels that occur in our intertidal zone from Kittery to, to Lubeck. Um, they are seasonal spawners. Um, they spawn usually once. Uh, it may take, uh, in a given area, uh, a week to two for all the clams to spawn. Um, those larvae go into the water column, and they swim for two to three weeks, uh, and then they settle to the flats at very, very small sizes, so sizes that are smaller than a grain of sand. Uh, and understanding the life history of the soft-shell clam is very important in, in, in its management and how we, how we see the fishery. Um, you know, I don't think most people know that when these clams, you know, settle from the overlying water to, to the flats, that they're a quarter of a millimeter in size. Um, and that quarter of a millimeter in size is also a, a, just a, a wonderful size for predators uh, that are a millimeter to two millimeters in size. And unfortunately, um, the major predator that we're seeing right now that has been in Maine since the early 1900s is the green crab. And the green crab also has a, a planktonic life uh, cycle. It starts early off as a larvae swimming in the water, and when it settles to the flats, it's a millimeter, which is four times larger than a soft-shell clam. And so in terms of the ecology of, of soft-shell clams, there's this murder mystery that's happening just at the time when, when they settle to the flats because now they're, they're very susceptible to uh, these one to two millimeter green crabs and other very small predators that uh, ultimately we know them as milky ribbon worms or green crabs or even lobsters. Um, all of these predators are attacking these very, very, very small uh, clams. So 
Um, unfortunately, right now, uh, there seems to be an, an, an overwhelming uh, abundance of predators, and it's having a detrimental effect on populations up and down the coast of softshore clams. And a question about um, the settlement. So the clams start as larvae. They're floating around in the water column, and then they quite literally settle to the bottom. Um, and you said that happens within a couple weeks. Um, does that is that happening at the same time up and down the coast? Like, no. Are there two weeks in the spring where all of a sudden all the clams have settled? Uh, so there's there's a, a difference in water temperature from okay. the southern part of the state to the northern part of the state, northeastern part of the state, and, and soft show clams are spawning in response to water temperatures. And typically, when those temperatures in the springtime hit somewhere around 50 degrees Fahrenheit is the time in which they're beginning to spawn. Now, they they do have uh, uh, one to two weeks or perhaps even longer in a particular region. Um, they the, the clam actually starts off as an egg or a sperm that gets uh, 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 placed out in the water column. It gets, uh, um, what's the word I'm trying to think of here? Uh, shot out of the clams <laughs> uh, into the water column. Broadcast spawners is what they're really called. So they broadcast their gametes, and fertilization takes place outside of the female and the male in the water column okay. itself. Um, and so these these eggs that are being uh, broadcast, uh, they are, uh, let's say, 40 one-thousandth of one millimeter or 40 microns in size, that's pretty wow. small. And that's why softshell clams that are two inches or, or whatever can produce around two to three million uh, eggs. And then as you get uh, larger and larger clams, they're producing uh, you know, eight to 10 million uh, eggs apiece as they get larger and larger. There's a relationship that's almost exponential between size and the eggs produced anyway. So these eggs go into the water column, they're fertilized, and then um, after a couple of days, you have this uh, developing trochophore, which is doesn't have a shell. And then a few days later, you have another development stage called a veliger that has a shell, and it will stay in that veliger stage for about two weeks. Well, during this time, they're in the water. They're not on the mud. They're they're swimming. They have an organ that allows them to propel itself through the water column and also to feed. And uh, that means that clams that might be spawning in in Trenton. Um, what happens to the water? You, if you look at a particle of water, that's basically what a soft-shell clam size is, is a particle. And so it's very, very, very unusual, or uh, the, the probability is highly unlikely that a clam that spawns at, you know, in, wh wherever, whether, whether it's Trenton or George's River or Machiasport, ever populates the flat that it um, that its parents came from. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so what I tell folks is that if you want to know where your clams are coming from, look east because the general, the net flow of, of the water along the coast of Maine goes from Lubeck towards Kittery. And so if you look at what happens to a particle of water over two to three weeks, which is the length of time that these larvae are swimming, uh, it's very, very unlikely that you know, uh, clams, even in a large river system for, for three weeks, um, are probably not populating those flats. And so if you're, if you're in Lubeck, you probably want to look at uh, Charlotte County, New Brunswick. Uh -huh. uh, if you're in Trenton, you might want to look at Winter Harbor or even Millbridge. And if you're in Millbridge, you might want to look towards Jonesport to uh -huh. see where your clams are coming from. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so 
Sarah, Brian sort of referred to the underwater murder mystery that's happening. Um, so tell us a little bit about what you guys are seeing in terms of the relationship between green crabs and clams. So we, um, you know, as many scientists have done work to find that the Gulf of Maine is, um, is warming at an unprecedented rate, one of the fastest warming water bodies in the world, actually. And we have found the connection between the warming waters and the increased populations of green crabs. The green crabs have a wide um, range of temperatures that they survive in, and they actually just thrive in warming waters. Um, it also gives the warming waters give them a longer time period that they can um, are active and um, they and our cooler or our warmer winters um, also give uh, don't provide the uh, kill off or, or dampening of their populations. So we see, especially in the southern part of the state, these booms and busts of um, green crab populations. And when there's more predators and they have a longer time to eat, um, the soft-shell clams are a casualty of that. Okay. Um, Chad, uh, from your perspective, out on the flats, I feel like I've seen some unbelievable videos from Freeport of just, I, I don't know if a nest of crabs is the right terminology, but it's what it looked like to me. Um, can you describe what you're seeing out there on the flats in terms of you're going after clams, but you're seeing a lot of crabs? What, is it, what does it look like? Well, I think the... I think really what to, how to describe it is what we're not seeing. Okay. And you don't, you know, when you're clamming, you 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 might see, you know, you might see a crab or two a day, maybe. I mean, you don't, you just, you just don't see them, and that's one of the problems. Um, you know, they're they during the daytime when the tide's out, they're burrowed into the mud, oh. or they're up underneath the, like you saw in the video, they're up underneath the the soft shore or the the spartiner or whatever, you know, the, the soft shoreline. And uh, so it's it's a difficult thing to, you know, for a lot of people to comprehend because they just don't they just don't see what's happening. They don't, it's not like there's, you know, all these crabs running around on the top of the mud during the tide. It's, you know, you, you, know, you, just, you just don't see them. And, and a lot of them, the, the ones that are doing the most damage are the ones that are so small that um, you, you wouldn't, nobody even notices them. So it's, it's really what you don't see. What you do see, you do see signs of uh, predation. Like you, you do see, you know, pock marks or holes or you know areas where they've been dig where they've been digging or burrowing or uh, doing stuff like that. But I, you know, but generally, you know, that's that's really um, you. You just touched on one of the uh, most interesting aspects of this scourge is that you you just don't see them. So. Um Chad, is that why sometimes you'll hear clamors say, oh, I don't see any green crabs. They're not a problem anymore. Well, it is because, again, you know, the, the only time that you see them is if you go looking for them. And so it's, um, you know, so, you know, as soon as, you know, people forget, you know, so if it gets cold and you don't see them or if you look for them and don't find them after a cold winter, you just assume they're gone, but they're, but they're not gone. Yeah. They um, they're, they're still there and they're still doing damage and uh, the warmer it gets the more damage they do and and they're just again even even in the even during the peak of you know what we saw as far as green crab you know populations in 2012 and 2013 uh, you, again you just don't see them while you're clamming so people don't you know and the thing is most people that are that fish for anything, you know, they're focused on what they're fishing for. So when I go clamming, you know, I'm not looking for green crabs yeah. or, 
not looking for, you know, pock marks or stuff like that. I'm looking for clams, and that's what I'm focused on. And I think it's difficult for people, including myself, to to focus on other things. You know, so it's kind of like I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but that's that's yeah. really one of the the big problems with this uh, this pro- this issue. So if you want to step outside of of the clamming and the clamor and take a look at green crabs, the thing to do is either put a crab trap down or seven uh, and fish it, and you'll find that it will be populated by green crabs. And we did that in the Harrisicut River for two years. Um, but you, you could also do the following, which is take a flashlight and go on a mudflat at low tide at night, and you will be amazed at what you see, even on flats where you know you've never seen a green crab. As Chad said, that what you'll find are telltale signs if you're looking for them, which are little depressions that they're creating, either burrowing down in to, to escape their predators, which I want to talk about in just a second, or it's a depression that they have used to go seek out their prey. And sometimes uh, what you'll find in those or near those depressions are little chards of shell that are all, you know, chopped up. Uh, that's the telltale sign that, that they've been feeding on. It could be a quahog, it could be a soft-shell clam, or any number of species of bivalves that populate flats. Um, if we have time, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the recruitment box studies that we've done and the species that we've seen in these boxes that we ordinarily won't see on flats. But let me just say that uh, in terms of green crabs, people want to know, well, you know, how can we get rid of them or, or what's, you know, how can we control them? Um, first, green crabs are eaten by almost every predator that's out there, whether it's a raccoon or a gull or a fish or a lobster or even another green crab. Uh, ducks uh, will dive down and eat green crabs, so everything eats green crabs. I just want to make sure that everyone knows that. And they're good to eat. Even even humans can eat green crabs. Uh-huh. I don't know if anyone wants to go picking them out because you know there's not a lot of meat that we would think compared to the rock crab or the Jonah crab, uh, but their meat is good. Um, <clears throat> The reason why we can't control them is because of their high fecundity. That is to say, the amount of eggs that an individual green crab can produce. So a two-inch green crab can produce 140 to 160,000 eggs apiece. How many two-inch and larger green crabs are there along the coast? And it's probably in the billions. So when you multiply billions times, you know, a couple hundred thousand or 150,000 eggs, we're, we're talking about gazillions of eggs that go into the water column. So the only thing that can keep green crabs in check is the weather. All right? Uh, and so if we get cold weather, as Sarah was talking about, and, and those that cold weather occurred, let's say, between the early 1960s and the late 1960s, early 70s, where we had ice for months at a time during the winter, and green crabs were not a problem. Now that we have this this warming trend, we're not getting those severe winters anymore, and green crabs are are not being kept in check by the by the weather. Mm-hmm. The other question is is that well, these green crabs are invasives. Where did they come from? Well, they came from Europe, and in Europe they have uh, many other species of crabs and other crustaceans that can keep these green crab populations in check, and that's why they they don't overpopulate areas in Europe, but but they do here because, again, there's no real predator that can actually keep in check the, the, the clams, so the, the crabs. So there's no biological check on their population. There's only a, an abiotic or 
uh, environmental check on their population. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WERU Community Radio. This is Coastal Conversations with your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. Um, we're talking about uh, green crabs and softshell clams um, and what's causing the decline of softshell clams, including green crabs. Um, and we've got in the studio with us today Dr. Brian Beal, who is professor of marine ecology at the University of Maine at Machias and director of research at the Down East Institute. Sarah Randall, who's Associate Director of the Down East Institute, and on the phone we've got Chad Coffin, who's a professional clamor and president of the Maine Clamors Association. Um, so uh, how did they get here? How did the green crabs get here? Um, they came through in, uh, the ballast water of ships, you know, starting in the 1800s. They came to the, the east coast of um, the U.S., and they've worked their way up the coast since then sort of through ship trade. And they it's only been in the recent decade, is that correct, that they've been exploding? Uh, I, well, so their populations have ebbed and, 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 okay. and, and gone on. Uh, there was a period of time from about 1951 to 1955 when seawater temperatures in the Gulf of Maine were almost identical to what we see now. And green crabs exploded at that point in time, and soft-shell clam populations just went very, 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 very low. Uh, not quite as low as they are today, uh, but there was a huge dip and, and a lot of people got out of the clamming industry. And then all of a sudden winters uh, became more severe in the late 50s and through the 60s. And, and then uh, by 1968, it was very difficult to find a green crab. They were still here in very small numbers, but their populations have been increasing um, probably for over 20 years. Uh, oftentimes it happens when no one's looking, and that was the case um, through the through the late 80s and, and early 90s. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk about the studies that you guys have been doing. Um, you mentioned recruitment box studies, and I know you've been doing all kinds of work out there on the flats. So let's hear a little bit more about those. Well, so it all started back um, in 2012 when we had that really hot um, year and they called it the ocean heat wave and then that was the time that chad coffin um, and the main clamors association really sounded the alarm to alert uh, policy maker makers and regulators about what was happening and um, mobilize and got involved also with the scientific community and the town of freeport took the initiative to uh, undertake a study to figure out what they what could be done about the green crab problem. And that's where Dr. Brian Beal and the Down East Institute and the University of Maine at Machias came in. They were hired by the, he was hired by the town to conduct research. 2013, um, trapping, fencing, um, different growth and survival studies were undertaken. And then um, Brian, you know, we needed more data. Brian loves data, and we kept going. And we ended up undertaking the largest intertidal research project in the history of the state, looking at the to figure out the cause of the clam decline and figure out ways to um, protect clams from predators and enhance clam populations. So we started this in, under DEI's umbrella in 2014. Um, technically, we're concluded in um, 2017, although we're still doing a few studies still in Freeport. Um, did 27 different experiments at 78 different sites wow. in the intertidal, plus two years of green crab trapping, plus um, two years of technology technology transfer, teaching clamors how to grow um, clams, and that way is a, another way to protect them from predators and upwellers. 
So we did this massive undertaking. Um, and in the course of that, we've collected a huge amount of data with all these different experiments. Um, some of the most fascinating is these recruitment boxes that Brian's talking about, and we invented them. And they're basically settlement traps that Brian is talking about how the clams settle out after two weeks um, of the water column. And so they cap its mesh on top. It's a box, mesh on bottom, and they settle through the little holes. The clams settle The clams. Through. And also other, and crabs can. And also, I mean, we've counted up to 27 different species or 23 different species of um, different mm -hmm. um, species through these. And um, they're protected by predators, so they're allowed, they, they can survive, and then they grow. And at the end of the season, in November, we take these boxes out, and there's just a huge amount. In some cases, we found um, 1,400 animals of just soft shells per square foot. In another area, we found 2,300 animal, uh, soft shells per square foot. And at the same time, we take samples next to them, and there's nothing in the mud that has survived. Zero, maybe one. But right next to it, one foot away in our protected boxes, we're finding um, 1,400 animals per square foot of soft shells. Basically, you know, I, I, I don't mean to jump in, but basically... Yeah, please do. Um, you know, what I, what I think about the recruitment boxes is it's, it's kind of like it's, it's allowed us to see what's settling onto the mud. And it's like, kind of like you know, pulling the shades back on what's happening in the ocean. And you know, a lot of this we have, you know... Um, I mean, it just in my 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 career clamming, you know, the the amount of productive mud has uh, in it just in Freeport has has been reduced by you know as much as eighty to ninety percent of you know productive acreage, and you know we've just always assumed that you know there wasn't any clams there; it was dead dead mud, you know, and, mm -hmm. and putting these boxes out there is kind of like it's been able to. It's like pulling the you know it's like like I said, pulling the covers back, and you can like, or, or pulling the shades, and you can like, wow, there's there's still tons of clams here. They just they just not making it anymore. They just it, the settlement's still happening. It's just nothing surviving uh, to commercial sizes or to sizes that we even see. So I mean, I think Brian can probably you know explain it better than that. But for me, as a clammer, I mean, it's 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 really been a game changer as far as understanding things and uh, understanding that, you know, that, that a lot of, you know, there's a lot of theories out there as to why there isn't any clams, but uh, these recruitment boxes have kind of have kind of laid to rest a lot of the debate as to what's happening. Oh, so the recruitment boxes was a, was a one of the 27 different experiments that we had set up, and the, and the reason for them was because of the phrase that Chad just mentioned, which was dead mud. It, it seemed that um, there was a lot of places that used to be uh, commercial densities of softshell clams, but there's been, there's been nothing there for 15 or even 20 years. Uh, clamors in some places have just simply forgotten to go to, to you know, a, a place across the river, let's say, in the Harrisicet or in other places, uh, simply because they know that there's nothing there. So these are dead mud areas. And, and uh, as Sarah, Sarah described, we place these boxes right on top of the mud. There's nothing in them. They're full of air. Uh, the mm -hmm. top and the bottom has a, has a screen on it. Uh, they're three inches deep, and they're one foot by two foot. 
and they're made out of wood. And we anchor them to the substrate by placing laths down at each end of them, pounding the laths into the mud, and then nailing the lath through the bo- the end of the box, and that keeps the, the box in place. Um, there's there's sediment in the water column as well as as animals and that sediment falls to the flats and that's why they're muddy but they also that sediment also falls in the boxes as well and so when we put out a box it might weigh three pounds and by november when we pull the box out it weighs 27 pounds because it's filled with mud and other organisms Um, and so what we've done is is just simply provide a a predator free or reduced predator zone because little tiny crabs might still get in? That's right. Even the smallest mesh that we use, which is about two millimeters in size, will allow a settling green crab to come in. So if I go back to our 19, uh, 2015 study, which was the first time we used sediment, uh, these recruitment boxes, um, we put out 120, 60 on one side of the river and 60 on the other side of the river in the heresy kit. Uh, and of those 120 boxes, uh, we got clams out of 114 so there were there were six boxes that didn't have anything in them except for a big 35 to 40 millimeter green crab oh that gosh. had walked in and simply, you know, eaten everything. There wasn't much for sediment in there, and there weren't the uh, 19 or 20 different species of, of bivalves. No, so we see soft-show clams. We see, fall, uh, we see uh, false angel wings. We see oysters and mussels. We see... Uh, polychaete worms. We we found small gastropods like periwinkles. Um, I think there's 13 different species of bivalves, for example, that we see in addition to these other. So, and as Sarah said, when we take core samples adjacent to these boxes, uh, we don't find the green crab. I mean, sorry, we don't find the soft shell clams. We don't find the false angel wings. We don't find the mussels or the oysters or a lot of even polychaete worms. Uh, and so what that's telling us is is that Predation is intense, and outside the boxes, you you are seeing the crabs. We do see that we do we do see crabs from time to time, but but uh, we don't see a lot of crabs uh, even that. But again, we see the the uh, the signs of the crabs and these depressions and things like that, especially this time of year. Mm-hmm. I mean, if somebody wants to know um, how many crabs there are on their flats, just simply go out today at low tide. Just go out today at low tide or tomorrow at low tide. And, and you know, if, if everything were perfect, that flat would be just as flat as the table that, you know, your, your tabletop in your kitchen. But it isn't. It's full of these little, you know, depressions. The, okay. These depressions could be four inches in diameter or six inches in diameter. But the, the entire top of the mud flat is just, you know, one depression mm-hmm. after another, typically. Uh, and I'm seeing it on the flat that's below my house in Machiasport. And when I go down to Freeport, uh, I see it down there. I've seen it in the St. George River, et cetera. I also wanted to say something about the extent to which these boxes have been used. Because an awful, a lot of times we, the three of us, will hear, well, these results are pretty interesting, Brian, but they're specific to Freeport. So to, to knock that one out of the park, we decided to put recruitment boxes in a variety of different environments. Okay. Uh, again, the St. George River, uh, Searsport, Penobscot, uh, we've placed them uh, in Machias Port and in Cutler. And what we find in all these places is it's the same pattern. We find more, significantly more clams in these in these recruitment boxes, no matter where we place them. And uh, the, I guess the, the Sears Port and the St. George River uh, have been just absolutely incredible because uh, in Searsport we did it with the entire high school uh, and, their, and all the biology students. 
uh, and we had three different sites from Stockton Springs and two sites in, in Searsport itself. And, you know, we, we found on average uh, over 700 clams per box in our Stockton, sample, Stockton Springs samples. Uh, and one spot in the St. George River, we found uh, over 2,200 clams in, in, in one of the boxes. And how do we know that? Because we count each clam individually. That's, that's how we know. That's the beauty of the high school students being involved, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. What a great you know, project and, and as, for that. And as a clamor, you know, I think it's important to note, like, you know, Searsport, you know, you asked me at the beginning of the show about the history of clamming, you know, and I, you know, and, and I know that I've, you know, in speaking with Brian, you know, I've learned that, you know, Searsport used to produce over a million pounds of clams annually and wow. used to be one of the top, you know, producing uh, towns in the state of Maine, and they haven't had a, to my knowledge, haven't had a commercial program in, you know, decades. I mean, there's just oh. there's nothing there. I mean, it's it's gone. But the, but again, the boxes indicate that clams are still settling in Searsport. It's just they haven't been surviving. Huh. Um, I wanted to open up the lines to our listeners. Um, if we have any clamors out there or um, if you have questions for our researchers in the studio or for Chad um, and the Maine Clamors Association about what you're seeing out there on the flats or what you're not seeing. That's the piece that's really sort of being driven home for me today in this conversation. Um, so if you'd like to call in and ask a question or make a comment, our number here in the studio is one 866 625-9378. That's 1-866-625-WERU. Um, Chad, tell me a little bit about the role of the clamors in some of this research. Well, the role of the clamors, you know, I think that the Downey's Institute has is the one that's is really the organization that's been um, encouraging in working with clamors in re with with re you know with regard to research in the inner title for um, you know, for quite some time, but generally speaking, um, there really isn't a lot of interaction between research and clamors, and it's mostly related. You know, and it's it's uh, um, I'm not sure how to how to articulate it, but it's it, you know I mean it's fishermen are, are digging you know, the, the clamors that are left are digging clams. They're not. They're not out researching yeah. the, you know, the the mud flats. And, and unless somebody like you know, unless an organization like the Down East Institute, uh, you know, comes along and 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 you know offers to to engage them in something like that. But as far as you know, clamors participating in research, I don't really think that it's. Uh, um, I don't think it's anything significant. Well, in specifically with the research project we did. Um Chad, you were a critical component of it. Um, other members of the Maine Clamors Association um, were a critical comp component, providing local ecological knowledge. And there were about, I think, at least 10 others um, through the years that participated actively as well. Yeah, so there's a, there's a, a role for clamors, and certainly the, Sarah just mentioned local ecological knowledge. You, by virtue of being on the flats out there every day, you're seeing things that probably the researchers aren't quite able to see in the same way. You're seeing it through a different lens probably. Well, I, I, you know, I, I tend to disagree. I, I okay. Think, um, I think that, uh, you know, I, I think that's one of the problems is that there isn't any, that clamors are not getting uh, that type of information from anyone. I mean, we have 
Department of Marine Resources, you know, for example, there's four area biologists in the state that are supposed to be working with communities uh, with regard to what they term as co-management. But, you know, what we've learned is, you know, there really there really isn't any management going on. Um, the, you know, it's, it, the, you know, clamors are not experts in the environment. Mm-hmm. You know, yes, they can make, like Sarah says, they make observations. And they, but they're not experts. And that, you know, they really, uh, they're experts on where to find clams, you know, how to dig them, where to sell them, stuff like that. But they're not necessarily experts on ecology. And, and that's a, it's a missing, it's a, it's definitely a key to, um, it's, it's a, it's definitely a key to addressing the issue, you know, moving ahead because they're not getting this information. And, and so basically you have, I don't know, somewhere around 75 municipal programs that have, that are, you know, they each, each one has a, a shellfish commission that meets, you know, every so often. But, you know, it's really interesting to me to, to learn, I've learned that, um, you know, we have these commissions that are making decisions uh, basically in a vacuum or without any information from, you know, no, there isn't any ecological information. And it's very, I guess what I'm saying is it's very difficult to manage a, res- a natural resource without any knowledge of the biology of that resource. Does that make sense to you at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks. Um, I think we have a caller on the line. Um, we have Yo from Tremont. Hi, Yo. Good morning. Good morning. What's on your mind? Well, clams are filter feeders, and I'm wondering, has any consideration been given to the effect of nanoparticles that pervade nanoparticles of plastic that pervade the water column. Thank you for putting on this program and thank you to everyone for being community radio. Thanks, Yo. That's a that's a great question. Um Sarah or Brian? So microplastics are, are certainly in the news and are a big deal. And filter feeders do uh, ingest microparticles. I don't know about nanoparticles, but microparticles. And the folks at um, uh, Mary in in Blue Hill, which is not Mary anymore, it's the the Shaw Institute. Shaw Institute. uh, They are on top of this. And uh, actually, I'm going to be meeting with some of those folks later on today at the Down East Institute to find out more about their work. Uh, But uh, it's it's definitely a problem. We learned about uh, some of the West Coast bivalves earlier in the year. Uh, in, in the news. Uh, we haven't specifically looked at it. We have uh, actually taken uh, water samples uh, at, at DEI and, and looked at uh, fiber particles in the water column. And what we have found is a lot of it is uh, the, the nylon from, from rope from uh, the fishing industry, whether or not that's the lobstering industry or, or whatever. But uh, we have found it uh, in, in the water column. I know a few years ago we had... Um, uh, Abigail Barrows on yes. the show, and she's been one of the people in the region doing a significant amount of research in this question of microplastics in the water column. Um, so if you go to the Sea Grant archives, to the main Sea Grant website, and find um, our list of shows, you can go back and, and hear that show because we had her on and she told explained a lot. One of the things that she also explained is I'm wearing mm. a fleece vest, um, is that every time I wash my fleece vest, microfibers are going into the water column. And she was looking specifically at oysters rather than clamps, yes. but she was finding the fibers in all kinds of, mm-hmm. from all kinds of water bodies. Yeah. 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 Thanks for that great question, Yo. Um, another consideration. The other one that I wanted to ask a little bit about 
from you guys in terms of causes of decline. So we talked about the green crab a bunch, and I bet we'll get back to it. Um, but you've also mentioned uh, milky ribbon worms, and I'm also wondering about ocean acidification in terms sure. of... Uh, so milky ribbon worms are also a predator of softshell clams, and milky ribbon worms are an endemic species. That is to say, they, they, they've been around for a long time. They're not an invasive species. They're a, they're a local species, if you will, or a regional species. And they occur from Lubeck to Kittery. So they're, you know, they're typically uh, on flats anywhere you go in the state of Maine. Can you describe them for us? Well, they look like a tapeworm. In fact, I think that's probably their common, what, what someone would look at them and say, oh my gosh, that's a tapeworm. Um, these animals as adults can get to be six to seven feet long. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> they're, they're kind of a cream color. Yeah. Or, so they uh-huh. stick out, you'll notice them in the flat. How yes. thick are they? They're, 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 so, so thickness-wise, they're probably less than a quarter of an inch. Okay. And then... You know, if you're looking, you know, down on them from the top, they might be uh, less than half an inch. So in terms of thickness, they're a quarter of an inch, but their width okay. might be, you know, a little bit less than half an inch. Uh, they're unsegmented, unlike polychaetes. So they, they're not really related, if you will, to uh, bloodworms and sandworms. Uh, they, they're they a different phylum. They're the phylum nemertians versus annelids. Uh, versus annelids. In any event, they are major predators. I've been out on flats in Brunswick with uh, Dan Devereaux, the Marine Patrol officer in in Brunswick, and we've gotten off of the airboat and said, okay, let's take a look at what's in the flats. And we go with our clam hose and some places we've dug and there's five or six on, on, you know, one dig. Uh, We've interviewed uh, clamors in that area and they've never seen the number of milky ribbon worms, uh, you know, like they are right now. They've never seen the densities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're, they're, they're major. And one of the things about them is that um, they have the ability, so if you're trying to get rid of them, um, Freeport in a, four or five years ago uh, asked their clamors to gather them up uh, as they clammed. But the problem is when they break apart, that's two more, maybe three more, four more uh, milky, milky okay. ribbon worms. So yeah, they, um, can re- they can regenerate. And um, we can tell um, when we do our research who, what is a predator we're dealing with because we look at the shells um, and we can tell by the crushed, whether the clams, the clam shells are crushed or not, if it was eaten by a um, green crab or a milky. So these milky ribbon worms have a very interesting way of feeding on clams. And, and so they have something called a proboscis, which is like a small tongue that they evert from the head end. And that proboscis goes down through one of the two uh, openings of the siphon. Some people call it the neck, but it really isn't the neck because the neck is at the uh, posterior end of the uh-huh. sexual clam. Uh, nonetheless, they, they uh, put that uh, proboscis down into the the middle of the tissue of a, of a softshell clam, and then uh, they uh, release a toxin. And that toxin essentially uh, just denatures the tissue as it turns it into soup. And then they will go ahead and eat it. Sometimes if they don't finish eating and that uh, tissue, that liquidy tissue stays in the softshell clam, uh, you might be digging and all of a sudden you'll pick up a clam and all the meat will just run mm-hmm. right out of it and it will smell like rotten eggs. Um, that's a pretty good indication that milky ribbon worms have, have been around. Uh, the other way that they can get into the clam is, is a little bit different, but on the, on the anterior side of the clam, which is the foot side that's actually the, the, 
what we would say the bottom part of the clam is it's living in the mud, there's a little uh, opening in the tissue called the pedal opening where it can put its foot out through its mantle. Okay. And so uh, if the foot isn't out, it actually can stick that proboscis up through the pedal opening uh, and get into the clam that way. So it has basically three entry points. Um, and what's been curious to me uh, as an ecologist that doesn't know a lot about milky ribbon worms or their life history, and it turns out that not a lot of people do, uh, is that these milky ribbon worms seem to have increased in their population at the same time that green crabs have increased, mm-hmm. whether that's due to uh, seawater temperatures increasing or whether that's due to uh, maybe there's an increase of another predator other than green crabs, but maybe something is preying on the predator that would prey on the juveniles mm. of the milky ribbon worm. I mean, something keeps milky ribbon worms in check. And, and it looks to me that they have been released from that predation uh, and their population is now going crazy. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Um, I wanted to, to switch a little bit to what can be done mm. to decrease um, the decline of sure. clams and the increase of these predators um, and the other drivers that are causing the decline. And I'd love to start with Chad. Um, your perspectives as an industry member, um, what would you like to see in terms of um, the management of the clam industry that, that you think might might help the the sustainability of your industry? You know, there's what I would like to see would be, uh, you know, I think it just just a, just in you know to for a, a starting point would be for people that ma- are trying to manage or regulate or whatever you want to call whatever you want to term it, if people that are trying to manage clams to at least consider the biology of the flat. And that would, I think, in the end, would lead them to exploring ideas and methods to protect soft-shell clams. And I think that has the, the I think there's potential there to uh, preserve the shellfish, you know, the soft-shell clam fishery, and and perhaps even uh, enhance the, you know, the the landings or the you know the the fishery going forward. But until that takes place, you know, people are relying on management tools that, that are just, you know, they're, it's like using uh, stones to, to build a house. I mean, it's, I mean, stone tools. I mean, people are relying on stuff that's so outdated that it's, it's, it's just crazy. I think- and, you know, in, in the DMR, biologists, uh, you know, for, for whatever reason, you know, they're, I don't, I don't, you know, it's almost to the point now where it's, we feel like there's a cover up. Why, you know, we don't know why they're withholding, you know, scientific information from shellfish commissions. Mm-hmm. You know, why they're even encouraging people to engage in things that we know uh, have, will have no impact on uh, protecting or enhancing clams. And mm-hmm. so it's just, uh, you know, so I guess that's, that's, that would be my answer is, you know, I, I think you need to start somewhere. And I think that that, that starting point would be just to have accurate, just to have accurate information to consider, and then let people become innovative with ways to, um, you know, to to build a fishery, you know, to to rebuild the fishery moving forward. 
I think Chad's speaking to the need to adapt. A lot of these management methods that we, the, the committees usually rely on, they were. So let me just interject here that the committees are town level committees that are empowered to manage the local clam flats. Yes. And um, Chad said the words DMR earlier, and that's the main Department of Marine Resources. Go for it, Sarah. Um, these management methods that they're used to using were developed when we had cold water in the 60s, 70s you know, a little bit of the 80s. And now it's we're in a different regime. It's the warmer water. We have to adapt um, if we want to have to continue this fishery that's been so important to Maine for generations. And we have looked at different ways to adapt the fishery. It really revolves. Um, there's some management changes that can happen. And on the flats, it, it um it involves protecting the clams from predators, whether that's through netting or boxes. And the management changes um, Brian and Chad have written about um, instituting a maximum size for mm-hmm. clams to allow the large breeders to breed and um, rolling closures on the coast going up and down um, in times where the clams are likely to be um, releasing their spawn. So to allow them to do that during the springtime. And and those measures may sound, uh, uh, you know, out of out of out of this world for for some folks but i think that if if you step back and take a look at how other species are managed by by dmr i'll just take a look at three different species lobsters sea urchins and sea scallops so there's a a lower and an upper limit for soft show for uh, lobsters and the upper limit is is designed so that the spawners the ones that produce the most eggs will stay in the population well, right now there's no upper limit for softshell clams, and we're taking animals that sometimes get thrown away because the industry, because the, um, the the wholesale and retail uh, part of the softshell clam industry doesn't want these very large animals. So the market doesn't want the large no, animals. No. Okay. Um, but if we look at uh, sea scallops, for example, uh, there's no there's no taking of sea scallops during a time when they're spawning, mm-hmm. which is you know in August and September. There's no there's no dragging, uh, sea urchins. There's no uh, um, after the after May. Th- there's no uh, taking of sea urchins, and that allows them to spawn. So it's not like some of these things that we're proposing uh, to to have others look at it critically uh, are are really out in left field. They're simply tools that are used in other fisheries, and and we're talking about using the same logic in the soft shell clam fishery as, as the logic that's been used for these other other industries. Mm-hmm. There is one, uh, so we talked about uh, perhaps something called rolling closures. I was going to ask you to explain that. Yeah, and so, you know, as we said earlier, there's a difference in the seawater temperatures along the state, along the coast, uh, from Kittery to Lubeck, and it gets warmer in the southern part of the state earlier in the year, and it doesn't make any difference if you're in Portland or you're in Georgetown, uh, clams are responding to seawater temperature, and when that temperature hits around 50, that's when they're spawning. So by taking a look at seawater temperatures and as it approaches and goes past 50, uh, what we're saying is is that it might make sense to just simply shut down that <coughs> fishery in that, in that region for one to two weeks and allow those animals a chance to spawn before they're harvested. Uh, we also have been talking about a minimum size, and right now there is a minimum size on soft-shell clams, and it's two inches, and it matches a two-inch law in, in Massachusetts. So, for example, if we didn't have a two-inch law, uh, then 
some of the clams would not be able to go to Massachusetts, and that's what's bothered people when oh. I've said, I think what we should really be doing is, is uh, taking the two-inch law and making it into a one-and-a-half-inch law that would produce more steamers for, the, for a main market. Um, and and uh, the, the, the folks that are purchasing soft-shell clams really think that's not a very good idea, at least for them, because they wouldn't be able to just simply take all the clams that come into their shop and then sell them. Um, so you'd have to grade them, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, rather than allow those clams between an inch and a half and two inches to be consumed by green crabs or milky ribbon worms, I want to put them into the hands of the clamors and ultimately to the to, to, to people. Uh, unfortunately, people think that I'm I'm talking through my uh, hat. Uh, I'm I'm really trying to advocate for the clamming industry and to and to stem the tide of. The last 25 years of watching clam landings, which are, uh, in, which is, it, which is, uh, information about the numbers of clams and the volume of clams that are are harvested every year, that that's uh, captured by the Department of Marine Resources. And if you look at landing statistics, uh, softshell clams since the two-inch clam law have gone down and down and down and down and down until 2017, when the lowest landings occurred in the last 80 years. So we, I'd, like, I'd like to see that trend reversed. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the minimum and maximum size law and rolling closures and perhaps uh, allowing uh, clamors or entrepreneurs to, 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 to do some farming of their own. Great, thank you. Um, unfortunately, I think we're almost out of time, so I want to give Chad, our resident clamor, the last word. Um, Chad, if you could um, sort of project into the future, what do you want? What do you hope for the clam industry in about five years? Boy, that's a tough one. I, you know, I, I again, I think that you know, I would just fall, I would just follow up with what I said before is that I, I, I would just hope that. Uh, people are able to use the information that they have available to them in making decisions. And I, I don't see a, a very, uh, my, in my opinion, you know, I mean, we're basically, I think most all the management right now is based on hope. We're hoping it gets cold. Yeah. We're hoping that water temperatures drop and that predation levels, you know, coincide. And okay. barring that... You know, the future is, does not look does not look well. It doesn't look bright for, for clamming, you know, wild clamming. It looks like it's con going to continue. I, I mean, I can... Okay, we got to... Unfortunately, yeah, we're year? out of time. It's going to be a lot worse next year. Thanks so much, Chad. Um, and thanks to... So that was Chad Coffin of the Maine Professional Clamors Association. Sorry to have to cut you off there at the end, Chad, but we're out of time. We also had Sarah Randall from the... Uh, Down East Institute and Brian Beal from the University of Maine at Machias and also the Down East Institute. Um, thanks to Yo who called in um, and Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Bangor Celtic Crossroads, a new festival.